0: Isn't it? The story's crazy though. Uh, if you've read the the Book of Esther, uh, maybe you reacted like most people throughout history and been like, "I don't know what to do with this. This is a weird book, right? God's name's not mentioned. I'm not sure what's going on. I'm not sure at all how to apply it to my life at today. Like, and you just like, seriously, throughout history, most Christians and church churches just kind of, just just kind of avoided it. Uh, but I've, there's so much good, rich truth and um, treasure in this epic story. And it is an epic story. It's a story that happened in actual historical context of King Ahasuerus, which is actually Xerxes, which would, you would probably know more from history by his, his uh, Greek name, Xerxes, and and very much in the time when Xerxes is ruling over the Persian Empire, and he does make the bid on Greece and gets his butt whooped like is portrayed in some of the movies, and, and all of that is, is what's going on in this moment, but, but God has it in his story in the Bible um, for a more kind of subtle and, and curious reason. It's not just for historical reference, though there's a lot of that. It's, it's actually telling something of what what is happening whenever the world seems to be heading this way and, and perhaps even seems like it's out of God's control, right? Where we're, there's not really any evidence that God's involved and uh, things have, have moved in such a direction that we're no longer sure that, that God um, can save his people and multiplied by the fact that it doesn't seem as though his people care at all. Because what you actually see in this in the story, if you're honest when you read it, is you see people that are that are Jewish that are of the children of God that aren't living as such, right? They're not they're not uh, following God's rules. They're not living that out. And so, what's going on in all of that? And I think as we move into this chapter three of Esther, we're going to begin to see um, we're into the thick of the plot of the story. Because one of the main reasons people will ask, well, why is it even in the Bible? If God's name's not referenced, what's the book doing there? And one of the main reasons is to give explanation for the Jewish festival of Purim, which is where they celebrate the fact that God rescued them through an unlikely savior from certain genocide, which is what we we read about the beginning of that. So the plot is beginning to thicken and we're getting to the heart of that story. But before we kind of get to how God saves his people, we're just going to set in this mess that happens today and, and let it kind of uh, inform us on how we are to live in the midst of a world that is increasingly moving away from God's values, right? Anybody else watching the news? It, how are we to live in a world that is increasingly secular, increasingly hostile toward the way that God has laid out life to be lived? And... More than that, not only how we should live in that, but more than that, what should we expect of God in the midst of a time such as this? And so I think there's actually a lot of uh, relevance to our life today, um, and so that's, that's why we're in the book of Esther, and that's what we're going to look at today. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about um, how really there's these people, these characters in the story um, who were in the city of Susa. Um, that they didn't belong there, right? That they were actually supposed to be back in Jerusalem because though they had been carried off into captivity and into exile, uh, that that had lasted several years, and that was God's doing. They had disobeyed, and so God allowed them to be conquered by uh, King Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire, and and that was punishment for, for them not obeying God's commands. But years later, King Cyrus takes over that kingdom and actually allows them to Uh, go back home. He says, you guys, you don't have to stay here. You can go back to Jerusalem. In fact, he blesses them with uh, material to rebuild their city. And he said, you can go worship. You're still going to be part of the empire, but you can go do your own thing. But many Jews don't do it. They don't obey. In fact, what we find is that the ones here in this story have gone the other direction because they were in Babylon. And instead of going back to Jerusalem, they went the other direction to chase uh, a better, prosperous life in this uh, incredible city the capital city of the Persian Empire, Susa. And that's, that's what happens um, that kind of leads us to this story. And we talked about how when our, when our Christianity isn't personal and convictional in a way that it actually informs our life, when it's just a cultural thing, right? When it's just a box we check or just a cultural identifier that we claim, that there's a lot of implications. And we looked at some of the personal ones a few weeks ago and how we, we, we lose uh, direction on how God wants us to live personally. But in today's story, we're going to actually look at when that is the case and when that's how God's people are, are living, not in really in regard to how God's called us to live, not in desiring to be in His presence, because you see, it's not like today, like God is present with us wherever we go. If we belong to Him, His Spirit dwells in us and He is there, right? In this day, that's not true. The Holy Spirit, Jesus hasn't made pardon for sins and forgiven us so that we can have communion with the, with the, with the Godhead like that and the Holy Spirit can dwell. That's not happened yet. And so... God's people are literally supposed to be in Jerusalem where God's Spirit dwells in the temple, and they come to be with him. These people aren't concerned about that. They've gone the other direction. They're not concerned about their God being in Jerusalem in the temple. Instead, they're just chasing their prosperous life. And so that's what's going on, and there's implications not just personally, but we're going to see nationally for when that happens. And so uh, today's story is going to lead us in in that direction of of the implications of cultural Christianity and how it eventually will take its toll. And what we can expect from God or or what we cannot expect from God is probably a better answer because we don't always know, but we think we do. And that's what gets us into some trouble. So let's just walk back through this. This It's kind of a confusing story in a lot of ways. So we're going to start back in in, verse 1 of chapter 3 and um, and just kind of walk through this, and it says, after these things, King Ahasuerus, which is Xerxes, if you haven't been here, that is, we're going to call him Xerxes because it's easier to say and more commonly known, but it's the same guy. After these things, uh, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, um, the son of Hamadathah, just say it, nobody else knows how to either, so, advanced, and advanced him and set His throne above all the officials who were with him. Now, uh, we won't talk about this today. We're going to come back to this. But if you read, we didn't cover uh, the end of 2, 19 through uh, 23. And it tells a story about Mordecai saving the king from a plot to kill him. Um, And so there's some interesting parallels there where Mordecai saves the king and the king... It just kind of moves on and doesn't really think. Mordecai doesn't do anything for him. And so the fact that someone else is getting promoted is a bit curious in the story, but we'll look at that in the coming weeks. But that's the things that, uh, you know, this is referring to when it says after these things. So Esther has been made the king through a real debacle of uh, social um, reality TV stuff that you you missed if you weren't here. Uh, Esther's been made king. Mordecai saves the king. And then king promotes this other guy, Haman the Agagite. Now, the Jews would have recognized the Agagites because it's an ancient enemy of the Jewish people, and we'll get to that in just a minute. So he gives him his own throne. He's kind of his number two. He gives him his own throne, puts him above all the other officials who were with him. He is kind of a mini-king of sorts, and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai Mordecai is a Jew that's not supposed to be in the city, but he is, and, and he's there. Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Hey, wh- what are you doing? Why-, why do you transgress the king's command? And they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them. And they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Now that's curious if you read the rest of the story, because what has Mordecai been telling his, his uh, adopted daughter, his cousin Esther, about her Jewish identity. He's been telling her not to tell, right? To conceal that, not not to let it be known that she's a Jew. And and so he's sort of been hiding his Jewish heritage and then all of a sudden at this point he 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 throws that card out there and so there's there's some curiosity about just even that fact that he tells them at this point. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or paid homage to him, in verse 5, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, that he was a Jew, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So that escalated real fast, right? So we went from just a couple people doing their own thing, one guy refusing to... to uh, you know, bow down before this other guy, and it's kind of a personal conflict to this guy who's in power, says, all right, I'll get rid of you. Not just you, but your whole people. Again, we read these stories too flippantly, and we don't stop and recognize the humanity and the tragedy that's going on here. This is national genocide. This is saying every Jew is going to be annihilated, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But here's the first point. When, when cultural Christianity is what we have and it's not a personal faith, a convictional faith that actually drives the way we live our lives. We get confused about what God wants us to do. We get the wrong idea about what we should be doing as God's people. And we see that here because Mordecai picks the wrong fight. Right? If you've been reading the story, this should it should sound pretty curious that he stands up in this moment. Right? And picks this thing to 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 draw the line on. He's not going to bow here. Well, listen, if you know what happened previously, this joker should have stood up whenever, not only did this king make this uh, claim that, or this edict that all of the the attractive, not just any, but if you were pretty enough and you weren't married, then you were to come to the castle for this crazy edition of The Bachelor, right, where all these women were going to uh, get prettied up and go through the beauty, the beauty regimen and then um, lose their virginity to this perverted king, so that he could pick his favorite one and make her queen. And the rest of them don't just get to go back to their their lives and pick their husband, and you know maybe try to recover from that awful thing. No, they have to. St- they're staying in the king they, in the in the castle. They just get moved to a different room uh, where the king's harem is housed. And, and if he remembers them and calls on them again, then they get to go, you know, back into his room for an evening. But otherwise, they may spend the rest of their life there, single, without a family, without all the things that, that most young women hope for in their day. And so that happens. And we see Mordecai, who has done a good thing by adopting Esther, right? Like, we don't want to look over that. He, he Esther's mom and dad were both killed or, or died in, in some manner. And Mordecai was, was the cousin of her dad, and so he was older, and he he adopted her, and it says he raised her as his own, and so he does a good thing in that regard by adopting her, but when it comes to this moment, and and not only, like, men, just, to, just so you know, if that kind of thing happens here, whether you have a daughter or not, we should be standing up and saying, no, like, no, that, it, like, over our dead bodies are you taking all of the young women, right? Like... We're not going to stand for that. So, like, that's our cue, man. When 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 women are being abused in such a way and objectified that they're being herded like cattle into the the king's court to, to go through like that's our cue, man, to stand up and fight. Right? You need to know that. Like, God re- requires that of you, expects that of us, and and will honor that of us when we stand up against evil in such a way. So not only should we just be doing that in general, but certainly when it comes to you're coming to my door and asking for my daughter, right? Like, no, like, not a chance. Again, I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, I asked my kids what they think I would have done, and one of them quickly was like, yeah, you had to shot that dude. I'm like, yeah, I'm going down with a fight, right? Mordecai doesn't do that. He lets her go. He's worried about her. He's stewing outside the gate all the time, always checking on her every day. But he doesn't speak up. He doesn't do anything. And yet now he's going to stand up and say, "I draw the line here. I'm not bowing to that guy." Dude, really? It's a curious place to draw the line. Like we should be kind of staggered by that. Now a lot of people are going to spiritualize this and say, "Well, Mordecai, you know, as a Jew, wasn't going to bow down and worship anybody else." Listen, this is not about worship in this day and age in this culture. This is this is not a worship moment for him. Like. Uh, it, it was just like, it was kind of like saluting your superiors in the military. It was just a, a, a cultural thing. Where, and, and listen, we have all kinds of instances where other people in the Bible bowed down to other people, and it was never indicted or implicated that they were worshiping anybody, right? We see Abraham uh, do it as he's approaching some people. We see uh, Jacob do it and his whole family to his brother Esau. We see all kinds of instances where men and women in the Bible bow down before others out of a, a you know, Endearment and respect and paying homage, and, and there's no, you know, that, that's not against God's command. That's not what's going on here. Now, he, he claims it's because he's a Jew, and he's kind of throwing that card out, but that's not what's happening here, right? It's much, and, and so not only that, do we have that just as a cultural reminder, but we also have the fact that Mordecai is a part of the king's officials, right? Like, he has a government position working at the gate. To get that government position, that joker had to bow down to King Xerxes at some point. Right. it's like, So this is not him just picking like he, we should not be viewing him nobly at this point as he as he's uh, found his place in his courage. I think he will later in the story. But at this moment, that's not what's happening. So we shouldn't over romanticize and here and make him a hero because that's not what's happening. Okay? Instead, it's much more likely that this is a personal pride thing or perhaps an ethnic thing. Again, as I mentioned, Mordecai had saved the king from a plot to kill him. And so there may be some tension there where Mordecai is just ticked that he didn't get promoted. Right? Like, that's one possibility. But what's also more likely, and, and maybe it's a combination of, is that there's this, like, ethnic issue between the Jews and the Agagites, where the Agagites have kind of always been trying to. Uh, take out God's people, but then there's a personal familial issue here. The book of Esther, again, God's name is not mentioned specifically, but there's all kinds of clues. It's brilliantly written in a way to kind of invite us in to look at the activity of God. And one of the things we learned earlier in the book is that Mordecai is a descendant of Saul, King Saul. You may remember him from the books of First and Second Samuel. And, um, and, and so what we have is Mordecai is so Mordecai's a descendant of King Saul, and Haman is a descendant of Agag weird name, right? But what, what we have is a story back in, uh, earlier in the Old Testament where g- these people have always been trying to attack and, and take, you know, take on God's people, and God told Saul, hey, you're going to, like, take them all out and kill them all. Get rid of the whole community of Agagites. Don't, don't. Don't take their plunder. Don't take them prisoner. Just get rid of them because they are an enemy to what I'm trying to do. They are being judged for their sin, right? Their country, their community, their nation has gone so wicked. God said this is their judgment and this is your protection that you get rid of all of them. Well, Saul doesn't do that. He doesn't kill them all. In fact, he lets the king live. He takes some of their goods. And he disobeys God. Now we see Samuel come in later as the prophet and take care of that mess. You might want to read that story later. It's a good one. Just Google that and find that in your Bible. We don't have time to talk about it today. But what we have here is this family rivalry that dates back generations where like great, 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 great great grandpa to Haman was supposed to be killed by Mordecai's great, 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 great grandpa Saul. And it doesn't happen. So this is probably much more what's happening here in this moment is, is a, a personal pride issue, an ethnic battle of, I, I refuse to bow down to this guy. I'm not giving that. I, I will not bow to that joker. He doesn't deserve to be in that spot, and he's been an enemy of my people for years. I'm not, I'm not giving him respect. So it's not a spiritual issue. I think it's just a pride issue. I think it's just the, that personal vendetta issue, and this is what happens. But he claims it's a spiritual issue, right? He claims it's because he's a Jew, Here's what happens when you're just a cultural Christianity. You get you get the wrong idea about what God has asked from us, right? You get the wrong idea about what we're supposed to be doing. When the world goes evil, we start picking weird fights. Don't like th- this happens to us. I think the same sort of thing happens, especially here in America, where for most of our history we've enjoyed the, the dominance of Christian values by and large in our society, and our culture, and, and we get comfortable because. Kind of a Christian nation, and we're just used to that. So we get comfortable with, with lots of things personally and corporately, and we get comfortable with sin, right? We begin to tolerate things that, you know, we know that God's against it, but maybe it's not that big a deal. And more or less, things are, are moral, and we just kind of uh, let our guard down, and we begin to just be unaffected and comfortable. But then something happens, and we take up arms because, well, they're not going to pass that law, or they're not going to take that right from me, and, and we're a Christian country, and they're ruining it. And we, we have these weird... Like stances that get taken that doesn't that don't necessarily make sense. And I'll give you one example. I, I think one example of it is, and you got to hear me out. Don't get the wrong idea. But one example I think of this is whenever they took the Ten Commandments and prayer out of schools. We had this rising up of all of a sudden. We're a Christian country and we're proud of that. And you're not going to take that out of our schools. And they're trying to ruin our country. And listen, I'm not saying it's wrong that we should like we should have been concerned by that. We should have you know like speak up and and but, but do, let me just ask you this. This is coming from people that didn't really have any concern about whether they or their family or the people of the country or people of the schools were actually obeying those commandments, right, or living a life of prayer, but we're going to rise up and pick that fight. Listen, what do you think God's more concerned about? Like them being formally plastered on a wall in a school and maybe a, a, you know, perfunctory prayer to begin each day, or do you think God's more concerned about his people actually Living as his people, right? You think God's more proud whenever there's a nation that, that has the Ten Commandments in every classroom, but nobody obeys them, right? We've we've made concessions on all kinds of things, on adultery, and we've allowed all kinds of idolatry and and you know covetousness. Like we're we're giving passes on like seven out of the three. Like we're gonna keep the we're gonna keep the whole stealing and, and don't kill each other thing, but those others, like we could take or leave them. But but man, you gotta leave them like. Out of tradition, out or like we got to leave them on the school wall. Like, do you think God's pleased by a country that has them on the walls of our classrooms, but doesn't obey them in our life? Or I think He's more worried about it being the opposite, right? That whether or not they're on the walls of our classrooms, whether or not they're uh, you know in this traditionalism of our of our lives, they're in our hearts and His people are embodying that and living that out. You see how we can kind of get confused and pick pick the wrong battles again. I'm not saying we shouldn't speak up about those things and we shouldn't try to keep the influence of Christian values in our world, but I, I, we just have to know what God has asked of us. And I think Mordecai gives us an example of a fight that didn't really need to be picked here. I think the guy, like, and so what happens is we over romanticize the story and we start to act like these people are just victims in this situation. And there's uh, cultural genocide that's happening all because, you know, Haman was brave and didn't bow down to. Or Mordecai was brave and didn't bow down to Haman when I don't think that's the case. And, and then people want to say, well, that's why God allowed Esther to become queen, and that's why all this is happening. God's working to that end so he can prevent the genocide that's going to come. And I'm just sitting here going, no, 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 I don't think any of this was supposed to happen, right? Like, I don't think God ordained Esther to be the, the queen so that this, all – like, no, no, I don't – I think – First of all, they shouldn't even have been there in Susa in the the first place. Second of all, I don't think uh, Mordecai needed to pick this fight and not bow down to Haman. And I certainly don't think that Esther should have ever been queen. Like, there's just, we got to take a step back and go like, okay, this is not what God has for his people. And whenever we just check that box and go, yeah, I'm a Christian, then we get confused about what God has asked of us. And there's plenty of other examples that we could walk through, but we'll uh, we'll keep moving for the sake of time. And so... um, often there's, there's consequences to those kinds of actions, right? And often there's not, they're not a big deal. Whenever somebody picks the wrong fight, it, it doesn't really have that big of an impact other than maybe embarrassing the rest of us. And you're like, is that guy on your team? Well, I don't know who gave him airtime, but I guess. Like he says he's a Christian, you know? So sometimes there's embarrassment, but, and it maybe it's just a personal consequence. But for this situation, right, when Mordecai picks this battle, it quickly goes beyond him, doesn't it? Quickly goes beyond his own consequences, and it becomes a national Crisis where the people of God are, are decreed to be annihilated. So let's read about that as we kind of wrap up, as we kind of read the rest of the story, and we'll talk about some more impl- implications. So, not only does this like, as an idea that Haman has, that like, uh, plenty of us, right, like, we've gotten mad at an, an individual and we've wished that we could bring some consequences on them, maybe even wished that we could, you know, bring an end to their life, but this guy actually has the power to do so and do it legally. Right? This guy's just been made the the number two in command of the Persian Empire and ruling the known world, like so he's able to make this happen and he's clever the way that he goes about it. He's a coward he doesn't want to just handle Mordecai one on one he wants to you know punish his whole people, but he's a coward, but he's brilliant. I want you to listen to the way that he brings this about so in the first month, which is the month of of Nisan in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast uh, per which is uh cast lots it's like rolling dice right and this is a way so this is not like this is a way that they sought counsel from the divine. This is not an unspiritual people. They're worshiping uh, a God. It's just not the God of the Bible. And so they're seeking guidance from that. And so they're rolling their dice. And, and they do that before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month. And, and until the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people, listen to how he frames this, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples of all the provinces of your kingdom, and their laws are different from those of every other people, and they don't keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. See how he's framing that? This is silly, because we have no evidence that the Jews are following their own king's laws in the first place. They seem to be completely assimilated into the Persian culture, and they're not really they haven't stood up against anything yet, so I don't know. But he's, he's, he's spinning the truth. He's making his own case here and, and making it seem like it's going to benefit the king to get rid of these jokers. So he says, Hey, so you got a problem, king. You got a problem. I'm here. I got you back. got an idea. Let me solve it for you. He says, If, if it please the king, if, it, if, if you want to, right? Make it seem like it's his idea. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. That's a big deal. That's, that's flippant conversation for these guys. It's a huge deal in every other realm of life. That these people will be destroyed. And he says, "Hey, I'll get you some money. I'll pay ten thousand uh, talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasury." So what he's saying is, they're all going to be. We're going to go and every Jew that's scattered throughout the the kingdom of Persia. We're going to kill them all, and we'll take their goods, and we'll give half of it to the guys who the mercenaries who did the killing, and the other half. We'll give it to you, king. And listen, this might be appealing after this king has lost like a costly bid to, to, kind of, to try to conquer Greece. He, he, he loses that, right? And then if you remember, whenever he um, crowned Esther as king, he gave everybody a tax break. So he might be feeling the the pinch a little bit financially, right? The, the funds might be a little bit low. So this is appealing to him. So he's... Uh, so, um, Haman is appealing to the need here, and he's saying, listen, we'll give half to the mercenaries. The other half, man, it's going to come in to you, and and it'll be really profitable for you. It's bad if you leave these guys out there, but hey, we can get rid of them and make you some cash in the the meantime. Uh, Verse 10, so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite. This is giving him full authority, making him the power of attorney, like, hey, okay, go do it. Um, and gives it to the enemy of the Jews. The story is unfolding. The plot is thickening. You need to see this in real time. Like This is an intense moment where not only is it the idea of one angry guy, but he gets the king's approval to go forward with this terrible mission. Then the king scribes, or he tells him, hey, the money's yours. The people also do with him as it seems good. That's what the king says to Haman. Verse 12, then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month in an edict. We'll come back to the, that date in a bit. According to all that Haman had commanded, he got what he wanted. And it was written, the king's satraps, to the governors, to all the provinces to the officials of the people, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. The Persian Empire actually kind of came up with the first postal system. In fact, their motto was kind of adopted by the U.S. postal system, um, and that they're going to get it there. They'll get it to everybody in their own language, and they're going to get it to your doorstep. And so this happens. It, it's going it's to get to every home, every every province everybody's going to hear this news it was written in the name of the king Xerxes and sealed with his signet ring all right so it's not just Haman's agenda he's got the king's approval verse 13 letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to to listen listen to this listen to the huma- i want you to have the humanity in mind to destroy to kill and to annihilate all jews young and old women and children it's not just men, men it's not just a battle this is this is genocide in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly um, by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, the city where they were. And the king and Haman sat down, this is crazy, Sit down to drink, but the city was thrown into confusion. Here's the second Here's the second big idea. I think when we have uh, just this cultural Christianity, um, well, here, here, before we get into that, how many of you are reading a story and and wondering, all right, when's God going to show up? right? Like, when is God going to, like, God can't allow this to happen. These are his people. He's made a promise. He has a plan. He's going to do something with them. Like, when is he going to show up? When is he going to intervene? What, how could God be allowing this to happen? I know these people have messed up, but like, God has to do something, right? Otherwise, things are spinning out of, his, out of control. How many of you are maybe not thinking that in the story, but you've thought that in your own life, right? You've thought that whenever things are spinning out of control in your own life, your personal life, your marriage, your health, your family, you begin to wonder, God, how much longer? Like, when are you going to intervene? How can you allow this to happen? Or perhaps not personally. Maybe you have been watching our country and been wondering the same sort of thing. Like, okay, God, when are you going to intervene? How long will you allow this evil to keep gaining ground? Have you had thoughts like that? Have you, have you questioned God in that way? Have you wondered where he is? Where are you present? Like, what are you doing? When are you going to show up? Why aren't you doing anything? Like th- this, this is escalated very quickly, and it seems. Listen, when this guy, when Xerxes, like, makes a decree, it's ultimate authority. He views himself as like, literally thinks that the sun is speaking through him. He he calls himself king of kings, lord of lords. He is an egomaniac. Like he thinks, and and he has the power. Like, he rules the whole known world. So when he says something, we're going to see this later in the story, when he makes a decree, it can't be retracted. It's like, sealed, done, deal. Like, And so this seems as though, like, the Jews certainly don't have the power to fight like, fight back, right? Like, they're scattered. They don't have an army. They don't have resources. And so, like, this seems like the end of the story. This seems like it's going to end really, really badly. We need to feel the weight of that. And I, and I think when we get in those moments, we, when, we're, when our... Christianity is just a cultural thing that we check and we identify it as, yeah, that's who I am, then we get the wrong idea about what God should be doing in our current state, right? Like, we get the wrong idea and we start to accuse God of of what he's up to and wondering why he hasn't shown up and when he's going to show up. And here's the deal. Here's what we need to think about. Is it's not that simple, right? Sometimes God is allowing things to, to happen for his own purposes, that is often for a reason like it's maybe he's disciplining his people maybe he's uh doing something in the greater scheme of history that we can't see you got to you got to remember that god has, sees a, a much broader picture from eternity like past to eternity future, like what he's doing, and he, and he sees a, a bigger picture than what we see, much in the same way that our kids don't always understand why we're having them do what we're having them do, but we see a bigger picture and why it's going to be important for them. God has a, a much far removed uh, view of history, and so he, he doesn't always act the way that we think he should, but that doesn't mean that he's gone. That doesn't mean that he's not present, but we start to throw when we're not, we're not reading his word, we're just kind of, yeah, then we start to ask, well, why isn't God doing this? And, he, and then we start to take responsibility on ourselves, We start to do all kinds of weird stuff. But here's what I think we need to acknowledge and we need to s- step back and think about. Before we start lobbing accusations at God and where is he and why is this, we need to, we need to look back at our own life, our own responsibility, and ask what role that might have played. Because as I said, these are not innocent victims of just racial genocide. I've already mentioned a few of them but but the reality is the world is not as it should be. we know that we don't pretend like Christians shouldn't pretend that things are better than they are and 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 ignore the calamities and the tragedy and the suffering of our world like we actually have a worldview that gives explanation for that, and we know that the things aren't as they should be, but that's not on god that's on us right like that's as a result of our sin, not of god's you know impotence or his lack of concern for the world that's we have created those things, both you know generally as as the effect of sin in our in the world, and then a lot of times personally, what is going on in our life is a result of our own sin, our own uh you know disobeying God and so we have to take a step back and, and just so just to look at this story just to run through a a quick list of things um here's some things that should not be as a part of the story they should not be the people of god should not right have continued in sin generations earlier that would have led them to exile right like this is not what god had for them in the beginning right And we could carry that all the way back to genesis 1 and 2 if you really want to see what god had it was it was that when it was good it was undefiled but even as God begins his redemptive work through Abraham and his people of Israel, the Jews, it's not, he didn't, you know, draw up this idea and think, oh, it would be really good to, to send a bunch of young women into the perverted bedroom of a of a king who's a piece of trash. And let, like, like, that wasn't God's plan there. And so from all the way, generations back, like if, if God's people hadn't continued to disobey, they wouldn't have been brought into exile in the first place. And then Secondly, they shouldn't have stayed in Persia after they were freed to go back home and, and you know be in the presence of God. We talked about that earlier. Thirdly, Mordecai and es- Esther should have been walking with God. We like. They they should have been following God, following His commands. Even if they decided to stay outside of you know Jerusalem, which was a disobedient, like a rebellious act in the first place, like they're not keeping His festivals, they're not keeping His uh, His dietary laws, they're not praying. Like we have no evidence of them living out their Jewish faith. It's just a cultural identifier for them. So they should have been doing that. that Fourth, they shouldn't have concealed their faith for so long. Right? Like you see that going on. You wonder why Mordecai is saying, "Hey, don't tell." You know, don't tell him you're a Jew, don't tell him you're a Jew. Well, listen, God doesn't call us to a private inward faith where we just quietly do our thing and you know, not offensive to others. Like we, God, Jesus calls us to publicly embrace his name, follow him, and let other people know about it. Right? Like, he calls us to publicly engage and evangelize others. And so Mordecai and Esther, they're not doing a noble thing by keeping their identity hidden. And listen, I think we can prove it by just saying, like, had they made it known, the king's probably not saying yes to this plan because it means his wife's going to be murdered. Right? You remember, King Xerxes really, really, really liked Esther. Like, he was a big fan of her. Right? And so, had they said, oh, hey, you know, we're Jews, Esther's a Jew, like, it's likely that he's not given the signet ring to Haman for all this to happen. So they shouldn't have done that. Like, that's another piece of it. Mordecai should not have allowed Esther to be in the competition in the first place, right? He, she shouldn't have been objectified and lost her virginity to this dude. Like, he should have stood up and fought for that. So it, to sum it all up, it's like she shouldn't have been the queen of Persia. Like, this was not God's plan. This is not what he had. Like, this is all a result of the people uh, running away from God, ignoring the way that he's laid out for them and doing their own thing. Um, and then... Mordecai probably should have just bowed down to Haman, right? He probably should have got over that, give the salute, move on, right? It wasn't, it wasn't a battle worth fighting. He probably should have just bowed down to Haman. Take it even further, Haman shouldn't even have, even have been born, right? Haman should not even exist. Saul was supposed to kill that guy. The very first, Like, should have been taken care of, done deal. Haman's not even in the story. Again, so some of what happens to us is not only our own doing, as we sin and walk away from the Lord and do things our own way. Some of what you experience in your life is a, is a result of your your parents' sin or your, their parents' sin. Like there's generational impact of uh, circumstances that come upon our life that that sometimes we didn't have anything to do with, but is a reality that this is not just God's indifference. This is uh, the consequences of people's action. Listen, I'm not saying that everything bad happens to us as a punishment from God for our own actions personally. That's, that's not what I'm saying. I, the world, I am saying that the world isn't as it should be, and that is on us. Right? That's our sin doing that, not God's indifference or, in, in, you know, just lack of ability to do something. That's on us. So sometimes bad things happen just because we're in a fallen world. Like an example of that would be the fact that Esther's Um, parents die. Like, we don't point that to a direct, you know, like, maybe it's because they chose to go to Susa instead of um, back to Jerusalem. I don't know, but the Bible doesn't give us that. Like, it's just a part of the fallen world that that this young girl becomes an orphan. Like, there's just bad things that happen, and it's not, like, God doesn't want it to be that way. So, I don't want to create this idea of a karma-like life, but I do want to remind us that God has told us how to live. He gives us promises to accompany our obedience, and when we fail to live without him bad things are likely to happen like it it's sometimes it d- isn't about god not being involved it's about actually about him letting us reap what we sow and learn some lessons so if we continue like okay so bring this back to real real life if we continue to move if our country continues our world our culture continues to move in a more in a progressively um more and more concerning direction in, in terms of its laws, its posture, its politics. If America continues to lose its Christian moral roots, and, and listen, I'm not saying that we don't pray and work against this, but if that happens, we should not be quick to judge God for his lack of intervention because God has made, like, remember, he's, he's playing the long game. He intends to bring redemption through the gospel to the whole world. His promises are still in place No matter what happens to America, because they never involve the United States of America. Like, God didn't make a covenant with us as the United States of America. God has made a covenant with his people, the church. Right? So, it's you and I, believers, no matter where we're from, right? China, India, Indonesia, America. Like, God's made a covenant with his church. He's saying that my church will not be overtaken. The gates of hell will not prevail against my church right and so we need to understand that if our country continues to slip in that direction we shouldn't sit back and cast blame on god and wonder where he is and what he's like why he hasn't done something instead we should probably turn our ear and go okay god what what are you doing here and what would you have me do in this moment again i'm not saying we don't keep fighting for the values of of our country like i'm not i'm not saying that but i'm saying if that continues to deteriorate we have to understand that god has the long game in mind, and he may be using moments in our history to sober us up, to wake us up, to make us less comfortable in our world, much like he did for the people here in Esther. Because We're going to see next week that the story actually turns, and Mordecai and Esther start to live for God. And so perhaps sometimes that's why God allows the Hamans in the world to have the influence that they have to wake his people up and to call us out of the comfort of just being okay with a secularized, assimilated life where we don't look any different than the rest of the world. We're not living the way God wants us to live, but we, we have this confusion of cultural Christianity. Like, perhaps God is, is doing something like that whenever situation A enters your own personal life or when situation A enters into the life of our country. Like, we need to look to those sorts of questions and, and ask God, what would you have us do? And and just read the like, first of all, you gotta read the Bible to know, right? Like that's why the Bible's important. The prophet Micah makes it really, really clear that what God has asked of us is that we love justice, love kindness, we extend, we love one another, and follow and walk humbly with our God. Like that's what God wants for his people. Jesus said the same thing. Like, hey, go love each other. Radically stand out in a, in a world that is selfish and has its own agenda. You should stand out not because you stand up taller again with your own agenda, but because you radically give up your life for others and you love with an abandon. That's what should be distinctive about God's church. That's what should be distinctive about his people. And so we should look at what God is doing in those moments and ask him to reveal, what would you have me do, Lord? What role have we played? What are you doing with our country? How are you going to use it in the grand scheme of history? And we probably don't have the answers to those questions, but we can know more about what to expect from our God when we read stories like this, and we take hope in the fact that He's not abandoned us. God is not uncomfortable; He's not worried about us being uncomfortable and freaked out. Just so you know, He's not. It doesn't bother Him. It happens all the time in Scripture. Okay, from from them being the people, God being in Egypt. If you want to read the Exodus story, God says sends Moses, right, some dude from the field, hey, go get my people. Pharaoh's the most powerful man in the world, and he says no, and it's like, well, that seems like that didn't work. Nice try. Like, it ain't going to happen, and it increases with this tension, this conflict. God picks a fight with the most powerful guy in the world, and he rescues his people, and then even after he gets them out of Egypt, we know what happens. They, they come up to the Red Sea, right, and there's nowhere to turn, and it looks like, oops, God didn't make a plan for that one. We didn't bring boats. We're out of luck, right? No, God's going to do something in those moments. He, he's totally okay with being brought to the brink of defeat and look, and, and to the world it looks like he's lost. The, the, the greatest display of this is Christ on the cross. We sing a song called "Death Was Arrested," and one of the lines says, "Our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross, and darkness rejoiced as though evil, or as, as though heaven had lost." And we. We move real quickly from the crucifixion to the resurrection sometime, and we, we miss that tension of it looked like God had failed. It looked like his promises had not come through. It looked like it was a defeat, and yet he still had a plan in mind. He's, his promises had not been defeated, and we have the same hope embedded here in the details of this story. So I want you to take the picture of verse 15 where you got Haman. So this edict goes out. The, the city is broken into chaos, it says. Why? Well, because these people that not only are they probably just okay with, but they probably made friends with the Jews, right? They've been living there for years, and now this this command comes in that they're going to be killed, like laying in the street, dead, like, so people are thrown into chaos. They don't want the Jews to die. Like, it's chaos, and then we have Haman and King Xerxes doing what? Bottoms up, just chilling, having a drink. It's a haunting contrast of It seems like the power has won. It seems like Haman has got what he wanted, and yet, yet God wants us to look for the reason for hope, and it's here. We just miss it because our calendars are different. The day that this edict goes out says in verse twelve, "Summon on the thirteenth day of the first month." Now, listen, we don't—that doesn't mean anything to us because our calendars are different. But for them the day before the passover. It's day before the passover. And is a huge deal for the Jews. Whether whether like this is a assimilated group of Jews, we don't know if they're practicing any any festivals or not. If they did practice any, we can be pretty sure it was it was the Passover, but even if they didn't practice it still they would know the date. It would be more, as recognizable if not more recognizable than, as December 24th for us. Like we know, like oh, yeah, that's Christmas Eve. Like so for them this is the day that they get this news. And you can interpret it a couple different ways. You can go, oh, why today? We're supposed to be celebrating, whatever. You know, like, what, like God's not going to save us this time. That's what we're prone to do. Or we can go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This isn't the first time God's people have been threatened. This isn't the first time that evil has been imminent on God's plan. This isn't the first time that it seemed as though God had lost. You can see the Passover. If you don't know the story from from Exodus, God's people are in captivity and slavery to the Pharaoh. And there's no way out. He's not letting them go. And God says, okay, death's going to come to every home in this world of Egypt. Every home, no exceptions, unless, unless you, my people, if you trust me, you to take a lamb. And instead of your firstborn dying, like it's going to happen to everybody else, you take a lamb and you slaughter it. It has to be one without blemish. It has to be perfect. Not your leftover, not whatever you got. No, no, no. Your best lamb. And you kill it. And you smear the blood over the doorpost of your home. And if you do that, then the death will pass over you. And those who obeyed God and trusted him, repent, like, their trust in God as a Savior and did that, they were passed over. Death passed over them. They, they didn't have to endure that penalty, that consequence. And more than that, they were rescued, not just from death, but into a life of freedom and away from slavery. That is what is being celebrated. And so on this day, is whenever the Jews get this news that they're about to be annihilated, it's the same day that dads all over the Persian Empire are supposed to be setting their families down and recounting this story. Drawing their kids in here and saying, hey guys, years ago, our people were on the brink of extinction. Like, and yet, and we deserve, like, we didn't have any hope, we didn't have any chance. And yet, let me tell you what God did, let me tell you how God rescued us. He allowed a lamb to be slaughtered in our place so that we didn't have to be. And, and today we have the life we have. That's a part of our story as Jews because God did that great work. And so this is, this is what they're about to celebrate and they get this news of this genocide on this day. And this is an invitation for them to look back up. For them to look back to God for their hope. And many of you know Our tables each week are prepared with the Lord's Supper. And this is our version of the Passover meal. See, for generations after that moment, the Jews observed Passover and they remembered God's redemption. They remembered God's rescue from slavery. But on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples. And he says, everything's going to change. And on that night, instead of, like, they, they do the lamb, but he says, listen, everything's going to be different now. And he takes bread, and he, and he, he's with his disciples, and he breaks it, and he says, this, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And then likewise, Jesus takes the cup, and he pours it out. He says, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, so that you may have life. You may have forgiveness. The Bible's really clear that we don't get forgiven without the shedding of blood. The Bible's really clear that our sin requires our death. But Jesus says, no, no, I'm going to make a way. I'm going to be your substitute. Where you belong for your sin, I'm going to put myself there, and I don't have any. I'm going to take your sin. I'm going to give you my righteousness. I'm going to save you not only from death, which he does, praise God, but also to a life of freedom, to wholeness. In our world, as it's moving, the direction it's moving. In your life, as it's going, the direction it's going, there's times where it will feel hopeless. There's times where you're going to feel like you've made too big of a mess of your life. Maybe that's you today, and you're, you're sitting here, and you're going, listen, I'm in deep, right? And maybe that's gambling. Maybe that's sexual sin. Maybe that's addiction. Maybe that's just life. Maybe you haven't talked to your family. You haven't been with your wife. Like, I don't know what the details are, but maybe you're here, and you're going, I'm in really, really deep, and I don't know how to get out, and I don't think I can. Listen. This stands here. Jesus gave us this meal, and he told us to take it when we were together as a reminder that there's no hole too deep. There's no sin too bad. There's no bondage too strong that Jesus can't rescue you from that. That Jesus didn't just die so you could get out of hell whenever you die here and get your ticket punched to heaven, and he did that. Praise God. We have great hope in that, but he also died so that we could have freedom from sin here in this life today. So we need to be reminded, like these people, that a lot of times it's our own mess. It's our own decisions. It's our own sin. It's our own choices that got us where we are. And yet, Romans 5.8, the truth is that Jesus didn't love us because we got it figured out. He didn't die for us because we finally earned it. No, what's it say? That while we were still sinners, while we were yet sinners, Sinners rebelling, rebelling, running away from God, Christ died for us. That's the hope of the gospel, that's the good news. Salvation. And that's the hope that we have when our lives are dark, when things are pressing in. Even if our country turns against us and we experience the same kind of persecution on a, on a scale like we see here, even if that's in our future, we can hold fast to the hope that God's promises will not be thwarted, that he will win the day, that we do have hope beyond our circumstances, and they rest in Jesus being the king, Jesus being the savior, not in us doing good, not in us overcoming our mess but Jesus overcoming it for us. Amen? I'm going to pray and we're going to celebrate by taking the Lord's Supper. We should celebrate, right? We should sing as though it's true. We should worship as though it's true because it is. God, we are grateful for your great hope throughout history. your, Your ways have not been always clear to us, but... They have always been victorious. And you have refused to be defeated. You've refused to give up on your covenant, no matter how bad we make a mess of it. And we thank you for that. And I pray that that truth would roll into each of our hearts this morning and we would be able to rejoice once more that Jesus is our Savior. That no matter what we've done, no matter what's on our heart, no matter how life has crushed us or we've made a mess, Jesus stands ready to bring forgiveness. Bring hope, bring new life, new birth. Bring that to life here today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.